Sometimes you go to a restaurant and you know that you are there for one thing and one thing alone. Like, if I'm going to Matt's bar, I am not going there for a hot dog. I'm going there for a Juicy Lucy. Their hot dogs may be fine, but I am there for molten cheese. That's what I want. Other times you go to a restaurant and you open up the menu and you look and literally everything on the menu looks so good. And that, my friends, is John 9 this morning. <laughs> everything on the menu looks so good. But we only have roughly 17 minutes, so. <laughs> but you, thankfully, you all have Bibles on your phones, and Bible, you can always go back to John 9, and I would encourage you to do it this week as you're, as you're praying. St. Augustine said about this passage that were we to attempt handling the whole of it and considering according to our ability each passage in a way proportionate to its worth, the day would be insufficient, and as are my allotted 17 minutes. Um, so we're just going to taste a bit. Uh, like onions and Shrek, John 9 is layered and awesome. We're going to walk through the story together, examine it, extract some principles from it. But what's incredible about this story is that really it's emblematic of the, the work of the gospel in all of our lives. And you don't have to take my word for it. The church fathers have been saying that for quite some time. Um, so I would encourage you to yeah, reach out to them. We're going to begin by examining this beggar, a man born blind from birth, and we'll, we'll look at the advantage that he might have had that he may never have considered, and then lastly, we'll look at the details of his encounter with Jesus. Now, before our reading today, just prior in chapter 8, the beggar, before our meeting with the beggar, rather, Jesus is telling the Pharisees in the temple that he speaks of things he's seen with the, his father and that he proceeded forth from the father, that he was from God, indeed was sent from God. And things go south really fast when he says, before Abraham was, I am, claiming for himself the name of God, and they grab stones, and he books it out of the temple to fight, to live to fight another day, so to speak. Uh, so here we are, scene one, and we encounter this man. As he passed by, Jesus saw a man blind from birth. It's a bit of an aside, but it's interesting to me that the context of our events today are in, this, uh, in our story are in the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. We read about that in chapter seven. Uh, it was a celebration to commemorate the Israelites' journey from the, through the wilderness from captivity in Egypt to Canaan. And during this week-long festival, if you're unfamiliar, they were instructed to live in temporary little tent-like booths, impermanent structures, as a reminder to them of God's provision in the desert. In other words, they needed a reminder that everything that they needed for survival, guidance, Shelter, food, water, God provided for them. Without him, they would never have made it. It's a strikingly similar situation with our beggar. Here we find a man with nothing to offer. For him, his need and his flaw was foundational. It was who he was. Is this not the man who used to sit and beg, they said? Of course, he was the one blind from birth. And the disciples, they asked this question, essentially, why did this happen? Why is he like this? Whose fault is it? And they're framing it in terms of sin, whether it was his sin or his parents' sin. 
And I'm sure that as he heard them, like, I'm right here, I'm in the room. <laughs> uh, it's not a new thing. It's not a, he wrestled with this proposition his entire life. Why am I like this? Why me? What did I do? What did my parents do for me to deserve this fate? And after decades of reflecting on this, sitting by the side of the road, begging, he deeply understood that relating with him was very much a one-way street. He's unable to offer anyone anything of practical value. He's helpless. And again, thinking about this story in the context of the Feast of Tabernacles, I'm reminded of the Jews on their journey through the wilderness, how when they reached the Red Sea, with the Egyptians hot on their heels, their backs up against the proverbial wall, and they're helpless. And it's interesting to hear in their moment of helplessness how quickly they longed for that false sense of control that they had as slaves, thinking that in their obedience as slaves, at least they could preserve their lives. What have you done, they said to us, bring us out of Egypt. Isn't this what we told you? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would be better to serve them than to die in the wilderness. In their moment of greatest need, it never occurred to them that God might be able to provide a path through the waters to their restoration, to their salvation. The reality is that God brought them to that place of helplessness so that the works of God the glory of God could be displayed in them, just like our beggar. You see, the man born blind is you and me. He represents humanity, hopelessly inept, utterly lost, bumping around into things, stumbling through our lives, begging for whatever we can get. He's lost in a fog of sin. Paul says it this way in our New Testament passage. He says, we were not only in, but we were darkness. We didn't know that we could be God's children. We didn't know all we lived was to satisfy our sexual cravings or amass wealth or impress our friends. Blinded by original sin, we were unable to know God and to be known by God and unable to, to give back to God in our work and worship. I do pray that Lent is that for us. Um, that is some sort of small opportunity to bring us to the end of ourselves in some way. A time to recognize our carnal blindness, our weakness, our fragility. And maybe at this point you have already fudged on your fasting commitments. Um, I've been tempted, I don't know about you. And it's okay. May the struggle and even our failure give us a glimpse at, into the depths of our need for Jesus. But in God's grace, as is often the case, for our beggar, when one sense is diminished, another is strengthened to compensate. So we move to scene two. Jesus says in verse seven, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went. Do we have any hunters in the room? Any deer hunters in particular? No? Couple, you can, you can own it. It's a, this is a safe place. <laughs> if you're unfamiliar with how hunting works, at least in Minnesota, uh, shooting hours begin 30 minutes before sunrise. And if you're a halfway decent hunter, in my personal opinion, you're in the deer stand at least 45 minutes before that happens so that, you know, as you're clomping through the snow or the leaves and making all kinds of noise and you have your headlamp on and you're 
lighten up the forest, um, you get a little bit of opportunity to, to let things calm down. And if there's no moon or the clouds are out, it's dark. It's very dark. You can't see your hand in front of your face, but slowly by slowly, you begin to hear everything. You start to hear things that aren't even there. You could hear a squirrel rustling a leaf 40 yards away at that point. Even throughout the day, as the light emerges, the deer are well camouflaged. They could be coming from any direction, and you are hearing everything. My point is, when you can't rely on your vision, you do begin to lean on your hearing. And in the absence of sight for our beggar, his hearing was acutely honed. Our beggar, with his need and his deep awareness of that need, had primed him to recognize the voice of Jesus. Contrast him with the Pharisees for a moment. You have this incredible miracle that takes place. This had never happened before. Someone who was born blind healed. In fact, it might have even been a clue that this might have been the Messiah alluded to in Isaiah, that the one who would bring sight to the blind. And they're lost in the weeds about who the man is and how this could have happened and how many Sabbath guidelines might have been breached. With all their sight and careful scrutiny of the law and their general impressiveness, they couldn't recognize the one whom God had sent. Our beggar, on the other hand, Jesus tells him what he needs to do, and how does he respond? Does he make excuses? Oh, Jesus, I've been like this my whole life. What makes today any different? Jesus, you don't understand. This is how God made me. Jesus, if I could see, then I I couldn't beg. I'd have to get a job. I don't have any skills. How would I make a living? No, he simply listens and obeys. And in the next chapter, in chapter 10, which we didn't have time to get to, where Jesus is expounding on what happens here, he's referring to himself as the shepherd of the sheep. And he says this, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. He knew he was a sheep. He knew he was a beggar. And he recognized the voice of the shepherd. I wonder for myself, how often do I miss the voice of the Savior in my life? Because I'm busy pretending to be capable, uh, solving my own problems, ignoring the one who knows me best and loves me most. Self-sufficiency is baked into our identity as Americans. It's not all bad. But taken to extremes, man, what a blindness. The Pharisees, they ask, can we see? And St. Augustine, he paraphrases Jesus' response. He says, because when you say that you see, you are not looking for a physician. And that is why you will remain in your blindness. He knew he was a blind beggar. And maybe that's not a bad place to be this morning. Maybe that's you. Maybe there's something about you or something in your past that feels like, make, like the, that you're fundamentally broken, fundamentally flawed. Like you don't really fit in with this church crowd. You're really not sure why you're here this morning or maybe there's no way God could use someone like you or something in your past has disqualified you or maybe something right now has you feeling like a fraud for even stepping foot 
here this morning. And I would argue that very possibly the thing that, that you think disqualifies you or puts you at a disadvantage is the very place where Jesus wants to meet you. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise and what is weak in the world to shame the strong. David, he was the youngest of eight boys, the smallest, least impressive of the bunch. In fact, when Samuel saw Jesse's oldest son, Eliab, he busted out the anointing oil and he was ready to go. This is him. David wasn't the oldest. He wasn't the strongest. Heck, he wasn't even in the room. But he was right where he needed to be for God to use him. I've been thinking a lot recently about being an adoptee. And I'm not really sure why, to be honest with you. But thinking about the why of that situation and why did things turn out the way they, they did, what might have life been like differently had I not been adopted. But as I was thinking about it in this context, I wonder if among a million other sort of reasons and purposes, if God intended for the complexity of my situation, coming from one family, being raised in another, to help me recognize that in the deepest sense, the truest family that we have are those who call God Father, and we call Jesus our elder brother. And so now we get to the fun part, spit and dust. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva, and he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And so he went and washed and came back seeing. This is one of the strangest coolest things that Jesus does. <laughs> We've seen Jesus heal with a word. We've seen him heal by the brush of his clothing. This is bizarre. Why spit and dust? There's at least three things that I think are going on here. And again, you don't have to take my word for it. Um, this is a, a citation, Augustine, Irenaeus, other church fathers, look him up. Um, don't even worry about remembering all this, but just sit back and kind of enjoy what God is doing here, what John is doing here. Jesus, he doesn't have his flannel graph out. He's not like saying, okay, this is what this means. Um, he's just doing it, but John is a literary master, and he's presenting this to us in a way to see in the big picture what the gospel is all about. The spit that proceeds from Jesus' mouth mingles with the dust, becomes clay, you remember John chapter 1, the Word, who was in the beginning with God, who was God, descends from the mouth of God, as it were, and mingles with the stuff of humanity, the dust, and he dwelt among us. The result, this clay, this sort of amalgam of divinity and humanity, is now applied to the blind eyes of humanity. Jesus himself is the antidote for our sin-addled blindness. If you're wondering fundamentally what Jesus came to do, he didn't come just to be a great teacher, although he was a great teacher. He didn't come to be some sort of moral exemplar, although he was the most exemplary moral person to ever live. Of course, he was those things, but he came to open blind eyes. He came to show us the love of God, to see that God loves you and he loves me, and that he has a purpose for each of our lives, and a specific purpose to show us that our suffering is not in vain. What else is going on here? It was an act of creation, or perhaps recreation. You remember Genesis 2. How does it describe humankind being made? 
Of course, we remember the dust like that. But I had to look back, and I was shocked, as I remembered, in a mist, verses 6 of chapter 2 and 7. A mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. And then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Mist on the ground mingled with dust. In no uncertain terms, Jesus is being shown to us as the creator. I love this quote from Irenaeus. He was making clear to those who can understand that he, that this was the same hand of God through which man was formed from clay. For what the creating word had neglected to form in the womb, this he supplied openly. And he did this so that we would now seek no other hand that that through which humanity was formed. Nor should we seek another father, knowing that the hand of God which formed us at the beginning and forms in the womb has in the last times sought us out as lost ones. He is gaining his own sheep and putting us on his shoulders and joyfully restoring us to the fold of life. That which was tainted by sin is now being undone. His presence means hope for a world that's been always winter and never Christmas. Spring is coming, Minnesota. Lewis writes, of course, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that all around them, though out of sight, there were streams chattering, bubbling, splashing, and even in the distance, roaring. And Edmund's heart gave a great leap, though he hardly knew why, when he realized that the frost was over. May it be so, literally and figuratively. Lastly, his anointing, the, beggar, the blind beggar's anointing, was a sign of his being chosen and set apart, a sort of recommissioning of humankind. Now, bear with me here as we take a, a diversion again through Eden. Eden is very much described in temple language. It's the place where God dwells. It's the place in which humankind works and worship. And at its center, we have the Holy of Holies. And we know that throughout the Old Testament that we have these recurring roles of prophet, priest, and king. And they were not originally intended to be separate vocations. They were functions of all humanity, was intended to fulfill from the beginning of time. And an unfallen Adam and Eve and all of their children were intended to, on God's behalf, rule, to speak God's words, and to act as a conduit of his blessing to everyone and everything that we encounter. And who are the people in the Old Testament that we routinely see being anointed? It's the prophets and the priests and the kings. And David, in fact, we, we read he was brought out and anointed as a young boy, both as a sign of what was to come, but also as a means of grace, a tangible expression of the grace that was working within him. These anointings happen to show us what sort of special purpose, what sort of unique and ordained vocation that person is about to live out and, and is inaugurated in that anointing. And so, friends, we are meant to understand that and in sa that a saving encounter with Jesus is a saving encounter with the better Adam. And his progeny are made new, restored to their glorious purposes, and sent out. Our beggar, he's no longer a one-way street. He's no longer constrained to begging and taking only. He's restored to dignity as one who can contribute, who can work and worship. 
one who can return as well as receive. He is powerfully speaking the words of God, acting as a conduit of blessing to you and me across thousands of words, of years rather, through the pages of Scripture. And where does this transformation find its perhaps conclusion, perhaps its beginning? Like the Israelites who are rescued through the waters of the Red Sea, this man is rescued through the waters called sent. We enter the church through the waters of baptism. We are washed with water, imbued with the presence of the one sent, thereby incorporated into that sent one, and therefore are sent ourselves to proclaim the glorious mysteries, not only that we've heard about, but we have now participated with our very bodies as we weekly taste and see that he is good. And friends, this is good news. Jesus isn't daunted by our blindness. He's not put off by our brokenness, our wretchedness. He sees us this morning, just as he saw Nicodemus, just as he saw the woman at the well. He sees the blind beggar, and he sees you, and he sees me. And your healing, our restoration, this recreation are ours in Christ Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.